I'm Mark Siegel, and I loved monster movies when I was a kid, and it turned out that I got to make them. And the greatest honor of my career was that my work and part of my hand are on a U.S. postage stamp. Welcome to CGI Fridays, a podcast from thecompanion.app. I'm Ed Kramer, and I've been a professional CGI artist for over 40 years, working at Industrial Light and Magic, and on some of your favorite movies, including The Mummy, Stargate, and the Star Wars prequels. In this series, I'm catching up with some old friends in the industry to talk about their careers, their work, and give you a damn good reason to stay behind in the movie theater watching the credits all the way to the end. I'm really honored to be talking to one of the actual legends of visual effects from even before there was CGI. I was born and grew up in Minneapolis, Minnesota, a graduate of the University of Minnesota. I was a double major in theater and English. My intention was to be a performer or something related to theater. And it's just been amazing the unexpected directions that it took me. And it actually started in high school with a really influential drama teacher who was young and creative and inspired a whole bunch of us. One of my closest friends, Gary Parker. I'm not a creator or, you know, an innovator by any means like some of these legends, people like Dennis Muir and people like that. I, I've always considered myself a work for hire. Now, I, I watched the interview you did with the Ghostbusters guys. So a lot of your early history leading up to ILM is already kind of documented out there. But if you want to kind of like do an overview of the twists and turns that led you to ILM. Well, I graduated from the University of Minnesota with a theater degree, thinking it would be a smart thing to do. I also got my degree from the College of Education. So I wound up teaching junior high in Minneapolis for my first year. But the show business bug was in me, and I discovered the existence of the Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Clown College. And in a Scholastic magazine I was using in my eighth grade, they had the address to write to. And so I did. I was accepted to the Ringling Brothers Clown College, went through their course, and was hired, about half the class was, as a clown to go on the road with them in their 1972 tour. But now, the, this is the essential part. During Clown College, we had experts in various fields coming to teach our various skills. And our makeup teacher was a guy named Vern Langdon, who, besides teaching us clown makeup and helping develop our characters, he taught us basic prosthetics. He had recently been on the original Planet of the Apes with John Chambers. Learned how to take a casting of my nose, do sculptures and molds, make my own rubber clown nose. Vern liked my work, and I enjoyed doing it, and we stayed in touch. After the year of the circus, I moved to New York to continue my acting career, eventually moved out to L.A. to continue the acting career. But, you know, you need real work while that's happening. And by great, happy circumstance, the same Vern Langdon, a generally creative guy, about a year after I moved to L.A., got a contract with Universal Studio Tours to create a monster makeup show. It's the land of a thousand faces. He needed people with the right skills, couldn't pay, you know, union makeup artists or anything. But he knew I had the skills. He wound up hiring me and three other guys he knew from the circus. So I was in on the ground floor of helping to create and then work for the Land of a Thousand Faces for about three and a half years. Thinking it was, you know, a temporary job while I was trying to be an actor, you know, turned into a career. I learned virtually everything about sculpting, mold making, mask making, prosthetic makeup effects, a lot of the materials. Met some people in the business like Rick Baker because it was just makeup effects was just booming at that time. But they'd come through our shop because we were doing cool things. So when I finally left Universal, it was a matter of uh, just making a few calls and I was freelancing, which I did for about a dozen years in L.A. Eventually made the move to San Francisco too many circumstances to go into, but I moved to San Francisco with my first job, which was a small company, um, Magic Vista, who got the contract to do the visual effects for Look Who's Talking. And they had interviewed me like a year before and recontacted me, and uh, they hired me. So I, I was there working on those effects. Yeah, the sperms and the, and the eggs, uh, we, uh, we did all of that stuff. 
met a few people involved with ILM at the time because they were either on the crew or came to work with us, Gary Plattick in particular. Meanwhile, I learned that ILM had gotten the contract for Ghostbusters 2. And I had worked on the original Ghostbusters in L.A. And they hired Tim Lawrence, who I knew from L.A., to come up and head the creature shop. So, really, I just called Tim and said, you know, I live in San Francisco already, so uh, you should hire me. And he said, yeah, okay. So that's what got me to ILM in uh, September of 1988. That was so perfect. You're a natural. I, th I think you should consider a career in acting. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, after I retired, I started taking acting classes and workshops again, and I actually have an agent who occasionally sends me out on things. So you never know. Now, what you did, of course, in telling that story was glossed over some unbelievable things. We can't just take you right into ILM without mentioning, like, uh, Ghostbusters 1. Ghostbusters 1 was not my first motion picture. My very first, right out of the uh, Universal show, was Star Trek The Motion Picture. I worked on Klingons, prosthetic headpieces for Klingons, because it was a last-minute decision to do them for the movie, and they needed them really fast. And one of my friends was on Fred Phillips' makeup crew. They didn't know how they were going to get them done, because you know, between taking impressions of all the actors and then doing all the sculptures and molds and with the standard prosthetic technology using foam latex. You'd have to bake it and it's never for certain. But we had developed this prosthetic grade urethane foam at Universal working with one of the chemical companies. So Rick Stratton, my friend, told Fred, he said, hey, I know this guy, Mark Siegel, who knows this technology that could help us get, him get it done. So they hired me, and each of us, there were three of us, each of us sculpted three of the nine Klingons. We turned them out, we did the prosthetic heads. They were also reusable because they were more durable than foam latex. So that was my first movie. Were you ever on set with Doug Trumbull? Because he was shooting the optical effects. Yes, he was. And no, I was never on set. Typically, all of our special makeup effects work, unless we're on set actually applying the makeup, is all, you know, pre-production. Rarely interact with uh, the shooting, or unless we're puppeteering. But even so, the visual effects director would usually not be on the set for that. So no, I never got to meet Doug until later on when... After, you know, I had established a bunch of other credits and uh, made some contacts, they hired me at Boss Films to do Ghostbusters, the original. And I wound up doing a, a number of shows at uh, Boss, which was just down the street from Doug Trumbull's studio. In fact, Doug did a lot of work over at Boss. So occasionally he'd invite our crew over to see in his screening room whatever show scan project he was working on. So it was a number of years later that I got to meet Doug. We haven't yet used the word Slimer. Slimer was my main character. I was not the original Slimer creator. That was Steve Johnson, who was head of that unit, and a few others. He did the librarian ghost. Uh, Steve did the work on the maquettes, zeroing in on the design. He sculpted the original Ghostbusters uh, Slimer puppet. I think the very first project I had was to sculpt all the interior of uh, Slimer's mouth. So I did these giant oversized dentures that I sculpted and molded and made out of dental acrylic plus a tongue. I sculpted over my arm so it was a tongue puppet that would fit my arm. So when we got to shoot Slimer, I was in there puppeteering the tongue for all of the eating shots. I watched the video that you did and I saw the breakdown of that shot frame by frame by frame, and I was in stitches watching that. That's the great thing about what we do, right, is that we create oh, memories yeah. that people actually carry with them. But, uh, you know, I remembered that scene, and, and now breaking it down frame by frame and watching you puppet the, the tongue and, and somebody inside the suit and, and then somebody yeah. handling things like eyebrow movements, I mean, that, that was just, that's lovely. And, and people can track that down on YouTube. Yeah, it was super fun. I mean, it not only cracks me up to watch that sequence, it cracked us up while we were shooting it. We knew, the entire crew just had a feeling Slimer would become a really popular character because every shot we did of him, we were cracking up after the shot was over. Or sometimes during the shot because there was no sound, it didn't matter. As long as we weren't shaking. So that's one of my favorite things about working in effects, whether it's practical or later on digital, is, you know, sometimes so much time goes by between the time you do the work and then it appears on the screen. So you have this objective distance. 
And it has actually happened to me that I'm watching something in a movie. And so, oh, that looks really cool. Oh, I worked on that. <laughs> you know, and it's it's super gratifying. It's sort of what I live for. Your list of films on IMDb reads like uh, who's who of the entire realm of visual effects work. Just yeah. going to read a little bit of this. We've got Poltergeist 2. We've got Star Wars Episode 5 and 6. Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi. And those were the uh, special editions. We've got Ghostbuster 2. Look Who's Talking, Back to the Future 2, Joe versus the Volcano, Back to the Future 3, Death Becomes Her, Meteor Man, Men in Black, Galaxy Quest, and now we're just starting into a generation that I was a part of, because Galaxy Quest means a lot to me. I supervised the rock monster on, oh, on that I love, show. I love that movie in general. It's one of my favorites. We talked about Ghostbusters 1. Is there any story that you haven't told about Ghostbusters 1? Man, I don't think so, especially, I mean, if your listeners want to watch my interview on YouTube, it's on the channel of the Containment Unit which is a San Diego-based uh, Ghostbusters fan club. And I talked for almost two hours. I even surprised those guys. They know a lot. But I told them stuff and showed them pictures that nobody's ever seen before. So now let's move on to Ghostbusters 2. My first job at ILM. Well, when ILM hired me, Slimer was kind of the main reason they hired me. And then for a while they were thinking of cutting Slimer out of the movie. And I thought, oh, maybe I'm out of the job. And then they brought him back. By that time, he had become kind of a star on his own. He even had his own cartoon show. So the designs got a little more cartoony. And he's very cute, but he's not the original Slimer. And what I loved about the original Slimer was that he really was kind of ugly. He was inspired by John Belushi, especially his character Bluto in Animal House, who was really kind of gross and disgusting. And it was just because of his behavior, that he was also somehow cute and charming and very funny. And that's a quality that the original Slimer had. And because it went more cartoony, I don't think that part of it was quite as successful. The other thing was technology had improved a lot. And instead of you know, hand puppeting and simple cable controls for the expressions, we went very much mechanical with radio controlled expressions. And the most limiting factor was instead of the original puppet that had just a rod with a little T in the lower lip that a puppeteer could just stretch in all kinds of ways, stretch and twist. We suddenly just had a pneumatic cylinder jaw control. That was cool technologically, but it was just really limiting. The puppet just didn't become the loose cartoony puppet that he could have. Of course, I didn't know at the time. I was just excited to be working at ILM and all the ideas everybody came up with said, wow, yeah, that makes sense. And it's only in retrospect that um, I found that one disappointing. So I've got to ask, which one of these was the one that I walked past to get to my desk every day? That's an interesting one. That was not for the movie. While we were in production of Ghostbusters 2, Planet Hollywood came to ILM and they wanted a figure of Slimer because they knew the second movie was coming. Uh, they wanted a figure of Slimer for their Planet Hollywood restaurants. Of course, you know, the model shop people came to me to sculpt it. And I thought, okay, this is the opportunity I have to bring it back a little bit closer to the original Slimer without departing too much from the one we were working on because, I mean, that's what we were working on. I couldn't do that. But I brought back the body proportions quite a bit more. I kept the smile, but it's not quite as broad and extreme. His head, his cheeks are not quite as wide. So that is the sculpture that I came up with for Planet Hollywood. I also sculpted him, you know, with a pose rather than the neutral one that I did for the puppet. And that's the one that's hanging uh, in the hallways of ILM. A favorite moment related to Slimer, to that one that's hanging at ILM, is that during our speaker series at ILM, Jason Reitman came to give us a talk and a screening of the film he directed up in the air. He was there with Anna Kendrick, the star. Jason Reitman is the son of Ivan Reitman, who directed the original Ghostbusters. So in the audience during the Q&A, I asked the question of how much his dad's directorial work influenced his directorial work. And then later on, you know, usually our speaker guests get tours of ILM. And I was sitting in the digital model shop, and it was right outside the door of that digital model shop where my sculpture is hanging. So I ran out the door to make sure I could meet him, and I introduced myself to Jason. And I told him that I was the one who sculpted that. Uh, he was gracious enough to have us do a picture together with it. 
he said, oh, man, that brings back so many memories because as a kid, I grew up with a sculpture of Slimer on my dad's desk. Jason is now directing the next sequel of uh, Ghostbusters. It's in, in production now. I'm just sorry he didn't call me up. I'd come out of retirement to work on that one. I don't even I wouldn't even want to do effects work on it. I'd probably want to get into it as an actor in a walk-on part or something. So as a Wizard of Hollywood now at Industrial Light and Magic and with Ghostbusters 2 under your belt, you did a, a number of years, probably a decade more years doing practical work, yeah. right? Actually, it was 14 years in the ILM model shop. At first with Ghostbusters, I didn't know how long it would last and I was in a temporary furnished apartment in San Francisco, but by the end of Ghostbusters, it became clear that I could keep working on things. And I worked on some fabulous projects. Toward the end of it, was getting really interested in CG. I had always been interested in CG, even before moving to San Francisco, when it was just being born. I'm really comfortable with computers. I've lived in a science fiction world since I was a little kid. So I was always interested in the potential of computer graphics for movies. And then it was starting to happen at ILM. There was some early stuff like Young Sherlock Holmes that was before my time there. But then The Abyss and Terminator 2 happened while I was there. And I did some work on Terminator 2 sort of related to the CG department. There are these figures of the policeman who turns into the metalized T2 cop in the hallway at ILM near the reception desk. And I did that sculpture. I mean, this is in the early days of CG, and they wanted to have a physical thing they could test to see how the light played off the wrinkles of the clothes, things like that. And we did another casting of it that we vacuum metalized. We kind of melted the clay and did a soft version as he's transforming. And then Richard Miller did the real soft version of it. I was in communication with the CG department. In fact, you mentioned uh, the Back to the Future films on my IMDb credits. I really hardly did anything for them. In fact, there's nothing that appears on screen. I did a little ornament for the train in Back to the Future 3 that ultimately wasn't used. But Back to the Future 2, the CG department was going to animate the shark come, that comes out of the marquee for whatever it is, Jaws 17, or I can't remember. <laughs> One of the CG guys came to me and asked if I would sculpt and fabricate a shark hand puppet that they could just kind of play with and shoot and use that for some reference for the shark. And then, of course, Jurassic Park happened, and I was blown away by it because all of us from the model shop got called into the little D screening room and got to see some of the test footage. A lot of the people were saying, well, there goes my job. But I was thinking, this is really cool. Eventually, ILM started making self-training available to those of us in the model shop. To ILM's credit, they recognized that the art is the art, and the artist is the artist. And if you can learn another tool, you bring the same eye and the same creative skills to that tool. They had people in all departments, not only sculpture or modeling, uh, painting, but editing and lighting and animation, all of that stuff. They were encouraging people with the practical skills to start moving over to CG. So I started, along with my buddy Howie Weed, we both started some self-training. It was frustrating because we didn't have official training. They just made computers and some manuals and software available to us to do after hours, you know, after a regular day of work. And eventually both of us were offered contracts with the CG department. Howie accepted the contract, but I didn't. There were a few reasons. Basically, I'm really lazy. And over the years from when I started at ILM, when we had a 50-hour work week, you know, with our union contract, we had started paring it down to a 40-hour week, which I really liked. And I've always been of the belief that your project expands to fill the time you have. You can, if you know the time limitations, you can get as much done in a 40-hour week as you can in 50. You pace yourself differently. Plus, I mean, I know my work style. I'm really fresh in early morning up until like after lunch and then the rest slows down. So I like the 40-hour week. I also like what I was used to in L.A. working at different creature shops. I'd work on a project for a few months or many months and then there'd be a break and I could travel and then I'd get onto another project. And the ILM model shop was very much like that. I was not full-time employed there. I was on the A-list, you know, if they needed somebody with my skills they'd call me in. But I had years there where I worked only a few months or eight or nine months. And I actually liked that. But now suddenly CG was, I think it was a 45-hour week at the original contract, essentially full-time employment. And my free spirit rejected that. 
how he still rags on me every time we talk. He says I abandon him, you know, so we joke about that. And I have to say I made the right decision because in those few years, I worked on a few projects, including sculpting maquettes and doing some miniature work for Phantom Menace, episode one, and then again for episode two, and then for AI, artificial intelligence. Which creatures in each of those did you sculpt? Uh, should I bring up some uh, Phantom Menace maquettes? That'll be the easiest way to talk about it. Oh, Dragonheart was another one. I'm going to do a screen share for you, and you'll love this. Ah, oh, that's my tongue. I sculpted that along with Gene Bolte. That puppet was fantastic, especially because I got to spend a month in Slovakia on location puppeteering the thing. That was on the wall. I looked up and saw that tongue every day in the Presidio. And there's a tail of the dragon, too, the tip of the tail. It's somewhere in one of, one of the elevator lobbies that I also sculpted because they wanted one practical shot where the tail kind of swings through and maybe it hits somebody or something. During those films, or after rejecting CG, I did what I think is some of my best sculpture work ever. Wow. That's the uh, EOP. I got to tell you, Mark, I, I lit the last shots of episode three with the EOP. Very cool. Well, this was during the design phase, and this was in the days when uh, people in production and CG people actually like to see a physical model. It doesn't happen much anymore. They do the prototype models in, like, ZBrush or something, because... Directors are used to seeing it on a screen instead of in real life. But at the time, you know, they really liked to play with things. So I got sketches from the ranch. Oh, and this one had Anakin riding it. This is sculpted in Super Sculpey. So we never cast and molded it. Oh, it's way too complicated. But it was so much fun to do all these little details, all the saddlebags and the sails and the ropes and things. So I was using a number of media. But then uh, it was sculpted in Super Sculpey, and then we baked it in an oven. And that's that became the finished model, which, by the way, George Lucas loved it. I heard it was on his desk for a while, and now it's on display in one of the showcases at the main house at the ranch. It's in the same showcase as one of the lightsabers. I know that showcase you're talking about, and it also has Indiana Jones's whip, and it has the badges from all of the Keystone cops. Um, yeah. And it also has the Holy Grail, the actual oh, Holy yes, Grail from right. the Indiana Jones movie. So your work is in pretty good company being in that uh, display case. I did not know it was there until I happened to go up to the ranch for lunch one day. And I spotted it there. And it kind of blew me away. I mean, I'm just unbelievably honored to have it showcased like that. Now, this one... This is the one that more closely relates to the one that you worked on, that you lit, because after the basic model was approved, they wanted a neutral model. And this one's quite a bit bigger. I don't know, 18 inches long or something. They wanted one without all of the stuff on it and in a neutral pose. And then they did a laser scan of this that became the template for the CG model. And that was uh, typical of what we did with maquettes. There was one for the design phase. Then we made one that could be used practically that was scanned, like here's the same thing that I did for the Watto. You can see the little Watto, that's the design sculpture that I did not do. I can't remember who did it. But then I did this one in the neutral pose that was the one that was scanned for CG. This was not CG, this was actually practical. Doug Chang designed this. This was a stone head that was used in a number of shots. Lauren Peterson was the lead on creating this gigantic miniature environment of the Naboo Swamp. So all of that set is practical. Wow. Um, it was on one of the windward stages, and it was like a 40 by 60 foot set of miniature foliage, and, you know, my stone heads. And I got to work on that set with Lauren. Lauren recruited me to incorporate my stone head sculpture into this tree. So I kind of built the tree roots around it, and then I worked with him on assembling the entire set. And Lauren is, you know, he's a legend. He's one of the true legends. I learned so much from working with Lauren, and he's just so great to work with, and just building that set was a real treat for me. That was my episode one stuff. AI was the other film I really loved working on. This little Geppetto and Pinocchio appears in the underwater scene when they, they've got the submersible going around the underwater amusement park and they pass by Geppetto's village and you see a shot of 
Geppetto carving Pinocchio through the window. And for me, this was a very fast and loose sculpture, but there's something I love about the feeling of it. It's the sculptor sculpting the sculptor sculpting the puppet. So it, it's very personal on a lot of levels for me. That's just and, uh, lovely. I have a casting of it that I was able to get and take home on my, put it on my mantelpiece. But it became pretty clear by the time episode two was done. The bulk of my work, see, I'm an organic sculptor. I am not one of the hard surface model makers. I'm not, I don't have the patience for sanding and truing smooth surfaces and stuff. I like to work fast and quick and loose, and I really like creatures and, and other characters. As an organic sculptor, puppets were starting to go away. Most of the character work was becoming CG because it was just so much more versatile. You could do so many more things with it. Maquettes were becoming less and less needed because people were getting used to CG. So as an organic sculptor, most of my work started going toward big organic sets. Like I worked on carving foam for the Padres Canyons. And for episode two, I worked on the big Jedi Arena, which was a monstrous foam sculpture. There are a lot of things I love about it because foam is so easy to carve and you can do so many things with it. But mostly I just hated it because it's usually really big stuff and you have to wear the white suits and you still get foam dust inside everything in your skin and your clothing and your eyelids. And it's toxic. It, yeah, I wore masks and it's still, it's everywhere. And I decided when I left LA, I just don't want to ever do foam sculpture again. And now here I was at ILM doing a lot of foam sculpture, you know, rocks and rocks and trees and things. And I realized that if I continue, wanted to continue doing character work, I'd have to make the move to CG. So I went to Patty Blau, who was, I think she was the head of animation department at that time. She knew my work from the model shop, a really wonderful woman, and, and she liked me. And I went to her and said, you know, I'm really interested in moving into CG now. You know my skills, you know I have the interest in it. And she got behind me and supported me and also told me that my timing was extraordinary because they had just landed the contract for Van Helsing, which was a gigantic CG monster movie, you know, and I grew up with the monster movies. That's where I lived in my heart. I had also made good connection with Andrew Cars. I don't know if you did you ever know that. Oh, oh sure. I, well, I was on Van Helsing, so I TD'd a lot oh, okay. of the shots on Van Helsing. I I used your bats. I can bring up the animation of the pygmy bat. Yeah, yeah. The pygmy bat was my very first CG creature. But Andrew was in my corner because he used to come over to the model shop and he liked my sculpture work and we'd talk about sculptures and I'd show him some of my techniques, you know, how I built armatures and things. And Andrew's an extraordinary sculptor, but I know he got some tips from me. When I would do a sculpture, I could take into consideration some of those little things that could make the mold maker's job easier. And so I showed Andrew all of this stuff. So he was in my corner. And Andrew became my mentor, and Patty got the company to sponsor me to go through the ILM CG training program. So I benefited vastly more than self-training, because I went through six weeks. Vicki McCann was my main trainer. Vixen. Yeah, Vixen, exactly. I actually got paid to train. You know, they dropped my pay rate a certain amount from what I was making in the model shop, but that was perfectly reasonable, because I was a trainee. But still, I was being paid for six weeks got the best training. I got all the foundation in learning Unix and all the stuff you needed to negotiate the menus. And I learned the basic Maya software and the Maya modeling. And so by the time they moved me into production, I had the good foundation. And then my very first project actually wasn't on a feature. It was a public service announcement a commercial for keeping the oceans clean. So I got to do some digital fish models, which, you know, pretty simple stuff but it helped get me in production mode. And as you probably know, where you really learn things is when you're actually in production. Uh, absolutely. So what was it like learning the tools that Maya provided? And was it frustrating that you couldn't just get your hands into it and start manipulating like you had always done? Well, thanks for that question. That's really a fundamental one for me. Fortunately, I'm very logical and I'm very computer literate. You know, I'd been working with my home computers. I don't know if you remember the K-Pro computers. They were old MS-DOS. I had one of those. I was doing some writing when I lived in LA. So I had, they were so-called portable computers, you know, but I had one of those. And then I got my first Mac laptop. It wasn't even called a power book at the time. So I'm very comfortable with computers. I'm very logical in my mind. So I can kind of think like a computer. It all made sense to me. And I found that learning software was really very easy. 
fact, I would rarely even have to refer to the manual because once I started getting into it, it all made sense. Like I'd think, okay, if I wanted to do this with this program, I bet there's a way to do it because the programmers are smarter than me. And okay, if there's a way to do it, it's got to be under one of these menus, you know. So I learned software very easily. The other part of it, though, was a challenge was learning to sculpt with a mouse and getting it to be as familiar to me as sculpting with my hands. But everybody in CG, people like Andrew, who had worked practically, but also in CG, everyone tells me, don't worry, it's going to happen. One day, it's just going to click in. I said, yeah, okay, okay. Uh, and, and then I remember what I was doing when it clicked in. I was working on Van Helsing. They assigned me a little task with the werewolf transformation. And what I had to do was take the digital model of the human teeth, which existed, and using the same geometry, transform that into wolf teeth. So it became a puzzle-solving thing, which I really love to do. So I used the same geometry, and then I started sculpting and pulling to use the same wireframe to make wolf teeth. And then there was another problem that wolf ha wolves have one more molar than humans do. And then I figured out, I've solved that by taking one of the molars and just nesting them together. So in the human mouth, they would look like one, but then it would stretch out. And I used, um, I can't remember which program we were using at the time. There was This was before Xeno. Um, and uh, it was one of the features in the program where you could morph something from one to another. So I did that. I took the human teeth and I transformed into a wolf. And I realized at the end of a day working on it that I was just so busy figuring it out and working on the problem that I was not thinking at all about sculpting with the mouse. It was just happening. And from then on, it became kind of natural. So there's my pygmy bat. I want to give a shout out to Frank Gravat, who was my immediate supervisor on this. This is my first production. This was a challenging creature to do. Frank was always there to get me out of trouble, to help show me things if something had to be done. And I want to say in general, this is one of my favorite things about ILM, Model Shop Digital Department. It's the best team I've ever worked on anywhere because everybody is more interested in getting the project done to the best possible way it can look than, you know, guarding professional secrets or whatever. Everybody with knowledge is willing to share their knowledge and their tools and help out. It's the most supportive environment I've ever experienced. And Frank is also a really interesting story. Oh, man, Frank is such a talent. And I first got to know him because he was there like sweeping floors in the model shop. That's what I was talking about. But the greatest guy, and he became one of the top CG modelers at ILM. I mean, he just did amazingly difficult and beautiful stuff. I never did any animation myself. In fact, I just turned it over to the animation department. They generated the animated turntable. So there we go. That's my first piece of CG history. Talking about turning things over to animators, was that part of the model building process to think about how the rig would be applied in the future? Or were you just building geometry and letting the next level of people figure out what to do with, about rigging? Well, that's another great question. At the beginning, I mean, I didn't know enough. I was brand new when I was doing Van Helsing. So I just tried to make the model look as good as possible. Later on, I would start being conscious of the rigors. And I'll tell you a story in a little bit when we get to Rango, because Rango was a great lesson for me and probably the biggest collaboration I ever had with the riggers. If you want me to go into that now, I was going to show you one more CG thing. Show me, but we'll definitely cover Rango because we, we have to cover yeah. Rango. And Rango is kind of later on. It's after Pirates and after Indy. My second project was Son of the Mask. And I was surprised, you know, because I was a sculptor, they knew me as a sculptor. Right away in my second CG project, Jeff Campbell was the supervisor of it. They thought I would be good at doing a human baby sculpture, which was the main character. So that was a huge challenge. But the most fun on that movie for me was doing some of the cartoony stuff the baby would change into. At one point, the baby turns in, his head turns into Woody Woodpecker. So I did this sculpture. And then one of the animators, I just did, we did a turntable, but then one of the animators did the little animation of it. And again, you know, I'm really at home with cartoon characters. This particular digital model was unique. I was still relatively new, and I thought, you know, I'd be more comfortable working not directly on the screen, but if I had a maquette. So I 
like went into the model shop and sculpted my own maquette. Like I probably knocked it out in about a day. We had a small laser cutter. So I sculpted my own Woody Woodpecker maquette and I scanned it and I spit out a digital file and then that became my template to build the CG model. And you know, that's probably the last time I ever did any sculpting. It's your last physical model. Woody Woodpecker. I want to get back a little bit to your question about the difference between physical and digital sculpting. On one level, digital sculpting was as satisfying to me as physical sculpting. I got the same brain, visual, artistic satisfaction out of doing it. The biggest drawback for me was not so much the sculpting physically. I didn't really care that much about that. In fact, I never liked getting, you know, the oil clay scent in my hands forever and the clay under my fingernails and didn't like working with the toxic chemicals so I didn't have to deal with that in CG but what I did like was the kind of community of it because the difference for me between sculpting physically and sculpting in the computer is that sculpting physically I'm using my eyes and my hands but other parts of my brain are completely separate I could you know be doing a sculpture and somebody next to me can be working on somebody else and we could carry on conversations and I could still focus on my sculpture with CG I found I was engaging my visual and my verbal skills at the same time because I had to deal with making selections and menus and verbal oriented stuff so I found that I just was not able to focus I could couldn't even listen to music or anything else while I was sculpting in the computer. That was the big difference for me. Didn't miss physical sculpting per se. I was really never a sculptor as an artist sculptor. It was always my job, a job that I loved, but it didn't matter to me and I didn't really have any motivation to do any sculpture after. Uh, I didn't have to anymore. You know, I've really never considered myself a designer. I didn't design any of these creatures or characters that I worked on. I knew I was a really good interpreter. You know, I knew I could take flat art and turn it into three dimension and visualize it that way. But left on my own, you know, do a creature sculpture. I have no ideas, you know, really no visions. I play music and I, I write things. That's more where my creative instigation really comes from more than visual stuff. You were working with polygons. Did you ever work with NURBS as opposed to polygonal-based? No, we had a little bit of alias, and then there was some soft image stuff that we worked on that had more NURBS central, but I was much more comfortable with polygons. And eventually, when we went to Xeno, I pretty much abandoned Maya almost completely, because even for hard surface models, which I had to do occasionally, our modeling and sculpting tools in Xeno were really robust. The sculpting tools in Xeno were far superior to the Maya sculpting tools. Often I would model a basic geometry in Maya and then just copy and paste it over to Xeno and do all the finished work there. Xeno just kept evolving. ILM has the best conditions for software use by the artists because if I had a problem with a tool or if I thought of a tool that uh, would work better for something, I'd just call up our IT department. Colette Mullenhoff was, became a good buddy of mine and, you know, Colette's a genius. Um, Academy Award winner, you know, for ILM. And I'd call up Colette and say, you know, this tool, it's got some problems. And if it did this, and she said, oh, yeah. And then, then, you know, next day I'd have a new tool. So what kind of tools did you use? Mostly the stuff I would ask for were like slight variations of the tools. Like I wanted to be able to push something in a particular way or much more user-friendly for pulling and pushing shapes and for smoothing and creasing and just pretty much everything you need in sculpture. And then things would be added along the way and then other tools when we had to start uh, creating facial shapes. I used them all. Did ZBrush enter the picture at some point? Well, I was aware of ZBrush earlier on. Jeff Campbell was using it as far back as uh, the mask and he was kind of raving about it uh, because it's so much more like real sculpting. I didn't start using it until Pirates of the Caribbean. Pirates 2 was the first of the pirates that I was on, and it actually became necessary to use it for pirates, too. You know, the monster pirates were really complex, and they had so many things stuck on them, seashells and barnacles and things like that. They realized early on that if we had populated those the surfaces of those characters with like geometry barnacles the thing would be so heavy it would just take forever to animate and render and then they got the idea to use zbrush and they would create zbrush tools for like barnacles and shells and various things like that that we could take our model into zbrush and 
populate it with these barnacles and shells and other things, and then export that as a displacement map instead of as real geometry. So you got the same dimension and the same look, and the painters could use those to paint. And we accomplished very complex characters with a minimum of geometry. Could you explain what a displacement map actually means? A displacement map is not real geometry. It's sort of a texture map, but the CG creature dev people could assign properties to these texture maps that was either, you know, color or reflection or subsurface reflection or whatever. And one of the options was displacement. So that mathematical trick they did that called it displacement allowed this map, which was really a flat map on the surface of the geometry to be rendered in a three-dimensional way. So even if it turned sideways, you could see the dimension of it. And then it went off to get textured and then you would see it in yeah. final shots. Yeah, and so the way they set up the digital model shop, I had the good fortune of being in the same room or very, sitting very close to whoever was going to do the texture on it. So we could work together on it. You know, if we need a problem, we need to work something out, laying out UVs on a part, or things like displacement maps or hair maps even. And in most cases, the texture artist was somebody I had a long history with working in the model shop. Or people like Gene Bolte or Early Barbier. Or Susan Ross. I mean, I worked with Susan a lot back in the model shop. I don't think she painted any of my models. I can't remember specifically. Here is the Hadris model turntable. This is before texturing. We had to model their weapons, too, if they carried any. So this is the handle. He would hold those things in his hand and would become a sharp, spiky weapon that he'd use. I tell you, I've had the luckiest career. Like anything else, it has its moments and the days that you're not so happy to be there. I can't think of a better job. I know that hundreds of thousands of kids are envious that I got to do this. And man, I was just lucky. Well, I had some skills, but I was also really lucky. We all have that same appreciation of what allowed us to be able to do this work professionally. Yeah. Oh, now I think of it, I think it may have been John Goodson who textured this one. Yeah, John's one of my other, you know, good buddies from forever in the model shop days. A number of us have stayed close after my retirement, and some of them are gone from ILM, but we have a little group from the model shop. John and Kim Smith and Howie Weed and Melanie Wallace and Lee Barbier, who are in contact all the time and get together whenever we can. And so that's the other thing. I appreciate about the ILM people. Is Melanie Jamie Wayless's wife? Or? No, no, she's uh, the sister of Chris Wayless and Mark Wayless. Chris was at ILM in the early days. You know, he was a sculptor, model maker, and then he went off to start his own shop. What was it called? Chris Wayless Industries, I guess. And did a lot of shows like Gremlins, The Fly, and The Fly 2. I wound up in between projects at ILM. I worked up at Chris's shop. So the Wayless family is a big visual effects family. Younger sister is Melanie, who worked at ILM for a long time, both in the model shop and as a CG texture artist. Their brother, Mark Wayless, never went over to CG, but he was in the model shop and kind of worked up to a supervisory position. He was also a supervisor over at his brother's shop, too. I just want to share one more model. This is Wheelback. You can see him from all the angles with the different ship's parts. On his face up there, that monocle is a ship's compass. <laughs> I don't know how many times I've seen this movie, and I've never noticed this wheel built into his back. So now i got to watch the damn movie again. Yep, next time. Once I don't have any pictures of one that I don't think was used until Pirates 3, a character they called Man Ray, and his head kind of looked like a manta ray shape with the manta ray tail that was like a ponytail. I really liked him. I don't have any pictures of him. I didn't get anything from Pirates 3, but, you know, they reused some of these same characters and created a few others. The main one I did, I think made it probably right after Pirates, is Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. I gotta say, you did the ants, and when I saw the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull in the movie theater, and I saw those ant sequences, I had been responsible for the scarabs in the mummy, and oh, yeah. I went, you know, it looks like they were trying to one-up me. Ha, 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 ha.
Well, as you know, I only had to model one. Well, in fact, I modeled eight of them. I modeled one basic geometry, and then I did, like, I think seven variations, just varying the body proportions so that they could have a little variety in them. I've got Turntable of the Ant. It's one of my favorite characters. You remember those little, um, what did they call them? The little light bulb with the gear awards? They were just little show awards for best whatever. Mm -hmm. I got a best creature award for that ant. Awesome. You also showed something that's real interesting because most people don't know what level of detail means. You showed yeah. a, an ant with three levels of detail. So show that and tell us why you would sculpt those three. Great question. I will do that. The other creature I did for that was the prairie dog. And then I got into doing digital doubles, which is another entirely different realm. I just want to say for anybody who's a budding CGI artist, the importance of working to reference is about the most important thing you can show in a portfolio, that if somebody gives you artwork, you can make it look like that artwork. Everything from Mark was done from reference, and he's about the, the best that there is on the planet. Thank you for that. And that was true back in my you know physical sculpting days, too, because we'd always have reference pictures. We'd get, like on Star Wars, you know, for the EOP, I'd get drawings from the ranch. And I'd sculpt as best as I could to match the drawings. As I said, I'm not a creator, I'm an interpreter. You know, Doug Chang would come down to our sculpting shop. It was me and Richard Miller, just the two of us sculpting all these maquettes for Phantom Menace. Doug would always, if there were any questions, he'd always come back to the artwork. That was the Bible for me. For anybody who doesn't know this, that's because the producer has shown that artwork to the director, and the director has approved it. And the director's approval is law in a movie. Exactly right. The film is a director's medium. So here's the three res ants you were talking about. The top one, obviously, that's the full res ant. You can see this great zoom out here. There's a fair amount of geometry here, and I don't know how many thousands of ants they had to render for that scene, but they were rendering thousands and thousands of ants. When you were close to an ant, you wanted to see all that detail. But the farther away it gets from the camera, the less you need it. So suddenly this one is starting to look okay. And now by now, this one's starting to look okay. So if you've got something really far away from camera, you don't need all that geometry. It just makes it much faster to render. And that's the reason we do those uh, various resolutions. And we do those in a lot of characters, not just creatures like this, but our digital doubles. We made low-res versions that were sometimes used as tools for the animators to animate quickly, and then also, you know, for shots that were done in the distance. Starts with the unpainted ant coming at us from a distance. Then it'll kind of fade into the painted ant, and then all the hairs that I put on it that are rendered now for a really close-up. And that's what it looked like in the scene. At some point, you don't need to render all the hairs. You don't even need to render all the complex geometry. By the time they're way in the distance, it doesn't matter. So it just makes uh, animating and rendering a lot more efficient. And what this is a great example of is the kinds of tests that you do before making these final shots. Every shot involves a lot of R&D and experimentation and pre-visualization of the shots. So this is great examples of all of that. I really came to appreciate how many different disciplines have to go through all of these different steps and back and forth and, you know, making things better. Well, I want to go through the Prairie Dog because I have a cool little turntable movie that'll show a bunch of the process of modeling. So I modeled this Prairie Dog. It's for the opening scene of the movie. And this is the grayscale model. This is generally what I look at to look and what everybody looks at to see what it looks like. That shows the wireframe on the surface. Get an idea. This is just the wireframe. Now here's the rig that the riggers would build to go inside my model. And then the animation handles they put on it to control all the points. And then the rig inside the wireframe. And then with the hairs, Modeling the hairs, you know, we're working just with curves, just with splines. You don't have to put millions of hairs on a creature. I just have to have enough hairs on it that determine the general length in that particular area of the body and then where the hair changes direction so that when they finally render all the hairs, it looks good. And then the texture artist creates the colors of the hairs that can even vary from the root to the tip. Each one of those curves can be one hair or 20 hairs or 100 hairs. They can have different thickness from the tip to the root. So from these basic splines that I put on, 
the feature dev person and the texture artist and eventually the simulation people do a ton of stuff to get the hair to look right. These are usually called guide hairs, if anybody yeah. does this stuff in Maya. Exactly, thank you. The animators actually animated him into position, because you remember I just had him down on all fours, and then all of the other artists rendered all the hairs and the colors to make him look like that. As you said before, Ed, there's the reference picture of the prairie dog that I was working from. And then texture artist also works from those same reference pictures. And now we can get into digital doubles. Yeah, let's talk about digital doubles. What is a digital double? How do you go about making them, using them? Why do you have them? All that stuff. Great. Well, a digital double is literally a double of the actor, but it's a digital model. The reason we make them is because there are sometimes, and more and more frequently these days, where the character has to go through some kind of outrageous action or stunt that even the most skilled stuntman could not even possibly do, even if they were insane enough to try it. Oh, you know, the digital doubles are getting good enough, especially now, even more than they were when I did them on indie, and realistic enough that especially in like a medium to far shot, but some even sometimes in a fair close-up, that they can be pretty much indistinguishable from a real actor. So if you can get away with doing a digital double, you don't have to put an actor into Jeopardy at all, and you can do anything you want with a character. Sometimes, unfortunately, a director puts digital doubles through things that are physically impossible in any universe, and that always takes me out of the film. But that comes down to the judgment of the director. I mean, nowadays, I'm not even sure I can tell which is a d digital double, except I can just kind of guess that you know, no actor would do that. As we were doing indie, ILM was developing this great new technology for digital doubles. Typically, in the old days, we would have their faces and their bodies laser scanned in great detail, and that would become the template for the model. But then they, at ILM, developed uh, this new technique, doing photographs from multiple angles, way more complex than I even understand thoroughly, except that I could work with it, that we could take our geometry for a human and bring in that 3D image, use it as a background, and literally get close up and pull the wireframe of the human to every point that matched up on that 3D digital image of the actor. So we could get them extremely accurate in high detail. It also generated texture maps because they were photographing the actual actor. The texture artist could start with those texture images and because my wireframe sculpture was pulled directly to those images, they could pretty much project the texture onto my model and it would fit. Of course, there's tweaking after the fact, as is always the case, but it got you a lot of the way there in a much more accurate way than just kind of painting by looking at a reference. Here's my first example of uh, Karen Allen from Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. That's the real Karen slanting over there on the left and my digital double of Karen. The other thing is with a digital double, we don't just model the human, we model every bit of their costume as well. I kind of really got to enjoy costume, digital costume making. I really enjoyed making boots and shoes. There was something fun about the geometry of boots and shoes. You know, I've got one coming up that has some great boots, you'll see. Unfortunately, because of cloth simulation, you no longer get to sculpt ripples and folds of the cloth, because that's going to happen in the simulation department, right? For the most part, it does. There have been occasions where they wanted me to sculpt a version of the model that had some basic large-scale wrinkles and draping in it, um, because then in certain shots, they could use that digital double without running extreme simulations. Let me do the close-up now. Here, I think you can see not only the modeling, but the texture and how useful it would be to have that technology that gave us that accurate texture map and all the accurate shapes. I and mean, that really looks a lot like Karen Allen. I also, by the way, had to model the hair again by using guide hairs, guide splines. So the people who did the simulations could do all kinds of cool things with the hair as it reacted to movement or wind or whatever. Ray Winstone, he's the one with the cool boots. <laughs> and I don't know why, I've never had any kind of shoe fetish or anything, but just turns out that boots and shoes are just really fun geometry to build. And you see his boots are really complicated. He's got those eyelets and grommets and various things and the laces all the way up the bottom. There's some wrinkles built into your model? Yes, and it made sense in this case because those trousers 
were always tucked into those boots. Instead of somebody having to simulate the fabric to fit there, that became the basic model. And then they would do simulation beyond that, you know, the way they would bounce or move or change a little bit. And then I also did Shia LaBeouf. Uh, I have a good story to tell about how this digital double was used. That could be informative to our listeners here. Of course, you know, the texture artist didn't have all the dirt that he had on when he was photographed. But, you know, that, that would be added specifically for shots that needed the dirt if he did. Again, we've got wrinkles in the jeans because those are things that are always going to have a certain amount of almost built-in wrinkle. One of the things we used him for were, you know, big stunt shots, like when he's swinging on the vines with the monkeys. You know, that's all digital double stuff that no human could possibly do. This close-up of his face, I learned after the fact that they used him for a really cool shot. Near the beginning of the film, he gets on his motorcycle and he's racing away from the library. They had a stunt double for Shia on the set that matched his body type and his general look pretty well and could ride a motorcycle really well. So they used him in the shot, but he wasn't a dead ringer. He really didn't look a lot like Shia LaBeouf. They used the stunt double shot completely, his entire body, and I wound up doing digital doubles on quite a few films after that. Some of the Avengers movies. And I did a couple of Star Trek Into Darkness. I just wound up doing a lot of digital doubles. Not that I'm an exceptional portrait sculptor, but because I got really good at using the ILM uh, software system and making really accurate digital doubles from those. You were on Van Helsing. I was assigned to do the digital double of Hugh Jackman for Van Helsing. I wasn't doing what you were doing, sculpting, and I wasn't painting the textures. I was running the turntables and lighting them. Very cool. There are a lot of things about digital doubles that are very subtle things, reflections in the eyes of the lids themselves. You know, there, there are oh, things yeah. that you have to put in there, subsurface scattering in the ears and in the nostrils. So there's a lot of stuff that people just don't know that we do to make these things look as good as possible. Yeah, and ILM artists, you know, like you and, and the rest of the team tried to figure out, because it's not all intuitive. You know, you have to watch and say, well, what's going on there? And things like, you know, the subsurface scattering you mentioned, you know, our skin looks translucent. You just can't paint that. You have to have light coming from below the surface of the skin. All of that stuff that uh, that they started doing and then continues even now to get better and better. You know, it occurred to me when you talked about digital doubles for Van Helsing, I think that might have been my first digital double was not Hugh Jackman, but the guy who turns into one of the werewolves. And I've worked on some of the digital doubles of the vampire women. But I got experience in quite a few things on Van Helsing that helped me immensely later on. Okay, so let's move on to the moment we've all been waiting for. Rango. Okay. First thing I'm going to do, this is excerpted. I've kind of trimmed it a bit, but this is from the trailer of Rango that will show my main character. I did several of the characters, you know, the townspeople and things, but my main character was his first and biggest nemesis, the hawk. I modeled this cactus and I modeled some special needles that could come off into his body. I modeled the cactus to match that pose that they wanted to put Rango in. And you can see how beautifully realistic it came out. And this was one that Gene Bolte did the texture art on. And then I'll talk about working with the riggers on this one, because that became really significant. He's incredibly realistic, or she. That shot where he's got the can on his head and turns around and the owls say he's going to die, that, that cracks me up every time in the trailer. So the hawk. I went through some discussion at the beginning with John Knoll, who is supervisor, and then Jeff Campbell, who is our immediate creature model supervisor, and with the riggers. James Tooley was in charge of rigging this, about which position to sculpt the hawk in, whether wings outstretched or folded in or what. And it became pretty clear that having it wings outstretched, especially for the riggers, would be the most. Trying to unfold folded wings into something straight would be really difficult. So I modeled him flat out, you know, just flying, legs extended, tail extended, and wings spread out. A lot of the feathers are guide hairs. 
that were rendered as feathers. But the major feathers, like the wing feathers, the tail feathers, and some of the bigger body feathers, were actual geometry. Those things all had to be attached to the rig. So I did my first pass on the model, I handed it over to James Tooley, and had, he had his team put together a rig for it, put it through its paces of different positions. And inevitably things would break. We'd discuss it and then uh, he'd pass the model back to me and I'd try to make adjustments, move feathers and things. We went back and forth several times. What we discovered was quite fascinating. We found out that the closer I could get to the actual geometry of a real hawk, down to where each feather was rooted on the skin, the better the rig would work. We actually had a taxidermied hawk hanging in our digital model shop was over by Jean Bolte's desk since she was uh, painting it. So I would go over there and I would take measurements and I would look on the model like where this particular wing feather was sticking on onto which muscle. By the time we finished the model, it's probably extremely close to a real hawk and how that geometry is set up. And that's what worked best with the rig. So that was a real, my biggest collaboration ever with the rigging team. And, you know, and James Tooley, he's another one of the ILM geniuses, was great to work with. And James also rigged the rock monster for Galaxy Quest. There you go, yep. Was there more that you wanted to say about Rango? Again, it was Crash McCreary, who is the character designer. His characters are weird and funny and quirky all at the same time. Of the CG character creature models I did, crashes were always the best and most fun to work on. You know, people don't understand how CGI works. What my project, the interviews that I'm doing, is to explain the process. Everything that you're saying today is really going to go a long way to get people to understand how CGI works from the inside, from someone who's been doing it for, yeah. for quite a while. But I did want to add something to your last comment, which I really appreciate about how people don't know how much goes on in CG. And I've had people say to me, well, CG is easier because the computer does everything. And no, first of all, look at the number of people in the credits of a CG movie. And there's hundreds and hundreds compared to like 30 we used to have on a practical show. And I also say it's really the artists who are using the computer as a tool. And I love to make this analogy. You can be really good at using Microsoft Word. It doesn't make you a writer. There you go. What a great analogy. Okay, I'm going to tell you a story about the stamp. This was for the 20th anniversary of E.T. Spielberg came out with a special 20th anniversary edition, and he wanted to fix some of the shots that he was not happy with in the original film. Some of them were the puppet shots. A few of the shots looked pretty clunky. He came to ILM to do it as not a puppet, because that would have been really, it'd take too long to build a whole puppet just for a few shots, you know, it was a complicated puppet. It made much more sense to do it as a CG puppet. Bill George was the supervisor on that. And uh, he came to me to do a sculpture of E.T. that they could use as the uh, basic template for the CG model. And there was a maquette that was done by Legacy Effects, uh, Stan Winston's shop down in L.A. That was a cool sculpture of E.T., but it was completely wrong for the purposes. It was not the E.T. that you saw in the movie. It was their stylized version of E.T. It had to look like the rest of the puppet shots because most of the original puppet shots were still in the movie. So I went back to uh, behind-the-scenes stills and uh, screen grabs from the movie, and I tried to sculpt an E.T. that was as close to the original as I could get it. The other great part of the story is that our little production team, the four of us had to go down to have a, a meeting with Spielberg about all of the things that we were going to do for the film. The model shop made me a little transport box. I had to bring down this sculpture, still in clay, and a selection of my sculpting tools because we had to have Spielberg approve that sculpture before I left the office. Fortunately, Spielberg and Kathleen Kennedy liked it just as it was. So that became the template that was uh, laser scanned and became the template for the CG model. I also did a full-size head based on the small head that was also scanned and used as guidance for the CG model. So fast forward a couple of years, the U.S. Post Office decided to come up with a pane of stamps, of 10 stamps dedicated to the behind-the-scenes crafts of American filmmaking. So they had directing, screenwriting, costume designing, all of these 10 crafts, and they were looking for some iconic image for the special effects stamp. So they went around to a bunch of the different studios, and ILM submitted a number of shots, you know, they thought would be iconic for 
special effects shots in the post office selected my sculpture VT. So here's a composite I did. That is the, the individual stamp comped onto the original photo of me sculpting E.T. You know, you don't see me in it. Typically, living people are not portrayed on U.S. postage stamps, but they do have my hand on it. The other great part about this, first of all, it was the most unexpected honor of my career to be on a postage stamp, but they also invited me to the Academy Theater in Beverly Hills, where they held the first day of issue ceremony of the stamp. Up on stage, Leonard Malton was the MC. He was at a podium. We had poster-sized images like that up on the stage, covered with black velvet, and then one giant poster size of the full ten stamps. And as Malton would talk a, a little bit about the behind-the-scenes craft that was depicted, those of us up on stage would lift the cover and reveal the stamp. So I was up there with uh, Sarah Karloff, Borex Karloff's daughter, because her father was on the makeup stamp. He didn't do the makeup, that was Jack Pierce, but he was on it. Frankenstein monster is an iconic makeup. I was up there with Carl Malden and Ernest Borgnine, who didn't have anything specific to do with the stamps, but apparently they're avid stamp collectors and, you know, members of the Academy. And with Jenna Rollins, who is the widow of uh, John Cassavetes, he was on the director stamp. So Jenna Rollins was there and she joked, you know, thinking about the living people not being on stamps. She said, well, now they have to cut off three of your fingers. <laughs> but then I did learn from the Postmaster General at the time, John Potter, really nice guy. He said that it's not a hard and fast rule. There have been times where somebody like the president could honor like a national hero or somebody very special by having them on a stamp while they were still living. It's just very rare, but it's not a hard and fast rule. So at the end of the ceremony, I was looking at these posters and I asked John Potter, the Postmaster General, says, is there a chance that I can get a poster like that of my stamp? I'd like to have it. And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll set you up with one. And then he said, nah, go ahead and take that one. So this is the one that was on stage for the uh, first day of issue ceremony. I packed it up and shipped it back on the flight with me back to San Francisco. What a great story. One of the highlights of my career. There's great material here that's going to really help people understand the process of modeling and what it's like to be a professional modeler for feature films. And I can't thank you enough. Is, is there anything I didn't ask? Not really. I mean, your questions were great. I mean, the only thing I'd say about the advances is that it just keeps getting better and better. And I'm blown away by some of the current work. The stuff that ILM did on The Irishman, like, it is amazing. That was always the holy grail, is we want our digital work to not look like digital work. If you can't tell we're doing it, that's then we've done our job. I love talking with you. You have great questions and you know your own personal insight from being inside. <laughs>